We're expecting our chimes or whatever, but no chimes this morning. Anyway, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 22. Uh, Rejection of a royal invitation is what I've titled the message, Matthew 22, 1 through 14. Lord, we thank you for your word now. Give me grace to teach accurately and clearly, make the appropriate application. And so, uh, Lord, uh, you're the ultimate teacher. Uh, Work through me for your glory now. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, uh, you will note uh, the outline on the overhead. Uh, The theme is Christ the King, and we have worked our way down to the formal rejection of the King as found in chapters 21 through 23. The last week of Christ's life culminating in the crucifixion in terms of activity was largely centered in the area of the temple. Early in the week, Christ had cleared the temple. And this really riled up the religious leaders as they considered this to be their turf. Who is this man who's coming in on our turf, throwing people out of the temple like he owns the place? Who does he think he is? Here is the order of events uh, as we believe they chronologically took place. On Sunday, we have the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And then Jesus wept over the city. And then he observed the temple activities. That happened on Sunday. Then on Monday, he cursed the fig tree. And then he cleared the temple. And then on Tuesday, he explained the withered tree phenomenon. And then we have temple controversies with the religious leaders. So in terms of activity, in Matthew 22 and 23, we are still on Tuesday of the Passion Week, and the center of activity activity is the temple. Now, in Matthew 21, 23, the chief priests and the elders confronted Jesus, saying, quote, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? This was the ultimate issue. And the remainder of chapter 21, and then into chapters 22 and 23, are in effect continuing to deal with this issue. This was really about Christ's lordship authority. Who has lordship authority over the temple? Now, the religious leaders denied that Christ had this type of authority, but Christ asserted it. In responding to their challenge, Jesus shared three parables, three parables of judgment, directed especially at the religious leaders, which was then followed by a series of controversies with them, which in turn was followed by Christ pronouncing the famous woes of judgment as seen in chapter 23. Well, we now come to the third parable of judgment in this trilogy of parables directed against these religious leaders in Israel. Parable one, rejection of John the Baptist. They said, by what authority? And Jesus tied his ministry to that of John the Baptist. And then parable two, the rejection of the Son, rejection of the clear prophetic truth of of the Son. And now today, parable three, the rejection of the invitation. Now note that in Matthew 13, Jesus began to speak to Israel in the form of parables, which was really a form of judgment for rejecting the plain truth that they had been shown. So when Christ speaks in parables, it involves a message of judgment, which is certainly the case here. In Luke 14, verses 15 through 24, we have the parable of the Great Supper, 
which in some ways is similar to this parable here in Matthew 22, but yet it is different. It it differs in both occasion and detail. So it's not the exact same parable. This parable in Matthew 22 still has specifically the religious leaders especially in view. Now recall, as I say, in chapter 21, 45, that the chief priests and the Pharisees perceived that Jesus in the previous parable was speaking of them. And they were right in this. Well, let's pick it up. Chapter 22 and verse 1. Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, note the connector word and. This shows that Jesus is still addressing the theme of the removal of the kingdom from the Jewish leaders. And once again, he is using a parable to make his point. So he again speaks by parable, and verse 2 says, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. This is another kingdom parable. Now parables have essentially one main point, which is being made by way of story illustration. In view here in this parable is the main point of the consequences of rejecting God's prolonged kingdom invitation. Now, the kingdom consistently in view in the Gospels is literally the messianic kingdom predicted in the Old Testament that will ultimately be fulfilled in Jesus, the Messiah, who will literally sit on David's throne and rule over the entire world. The whole of history is moving towards this kingdom, this kingdom rule, and every person in the end will either have a glorious part in it or will be thrust from it. Every person here ultimately is going into the kingdom or you're going to be cast out of it. So the ultimate issue is whether or not one will be in the kingdom. And it is on this point that the religious leaders are in big trouble. The king in this parable represents God the Father and the son represents Jesus Christ. The wedding invitation is an invite to partake in the kingdom celebration and blessings. Now, a wedding feast in Scripture is often used to portray the coming kingdom. It is going to be a time of celebration. ESV Study Bible correctly summarizes the feast represents enjoying fellowship with God and His kingdom. And coming to the feast thus represents entering the kingdom. The ultimate issue in the scriptures is ultimately the kingdom and whether one will be there or not. Verse 3, he continues, And sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. The servants represent the prophets who called the people to repentance in preparation for the coming Messiah and his kingdom. Consistently as seen In John the Baptist and also in Christ's ministry, the way into the kingdom is by way of repentance. I mean, that's what John the Baptist's whole ministry, that he was the forerunner, and that's what his whole ministry was about. A call to repentance. And when people repented, they indicated that in baptism. In anticipation of the coming kingdom, the message of repentance went out, extending all the way back into the time of the Old Testament, Many prophets were involved in calling the people to repentance. Now, verses 3 through 6 illustrate God's call to Israel. To Israel, 
through the Old Testament prophets, through John the Baptist, through Christ and his apostles, for the people to come to repentance. Thus, it pictures an extended time of invitation. The sense is that a royal invitation was special and really essentially compulsory. I mean, you really are expected to say yes to the king's invitation. To say no to the king's invitation smacked of disloyalty and was worthy of judgment. Verse 4, again, again he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are killed and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. First came the Old Testament prophets who prepared the way, who gave the initial wave of invitation concerning the coming kingdom. But then came yet other servants, other prophets, who told the Jewish people, who had long had invitation in hand, that now the banquet dinner was ready. All things were now ready. This fits well with John the Baptist coming on the scene and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's at hand. All things are now ready. Jesus followed up in his ministry. He and his apostles saying the same thing. The message was, all things are ready. For the kingdom is now at hand. And the only condition for it to be ushered in is the condition of repentance. And so the invitation of come went out. John the Baptist used similar wedding prep imagery in his preaching. Notice what he says here in John 3.29. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, that's John the Baptist speaking of himself, who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. So he used the same type of imagery. So again and again, the invitation went forth to Israel, culminating in the ministry of John the Baptist, followed by Christ and his apostles. Verse 5, But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. So the first response emphasized here is that of indifference. Indifference. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, Hebrews 2, 3? All you have to do to go to hell is just neglect the invitation. This response of indifference. I mean, they made light of it. It's no, no significance. What? What's this? It's just an invitation from the king to come to his son's way. I got better things to do. This is of no consequence. This is no, it's not a serious consideration. They simply didn't care. They wouldn't be bothered with it. And a lot of people in that category today, I got other things to do. I'm not concerned about God and his kingdom. What? I don't care. I don't care what the Bible has to say. They have more important things to do. Verse 6, And the rest... You know, there were those who were not only indifferent, they were hostile. The rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, uh, arrogantly, rudely, and killed them. So the other response here is one of hostility and violent rejection. 
expressed in the abuse and the murder of the servants who were bringing forth the invitation. Now, the religious leaders in Israel approved the execution of John the Baptist. They were the instigators behind the crucifixion of Christ. And they were also the instigators of much of the persecution experienced by the early church, including the murder of Stephen, the the very first martyr of the church. Now, just before they killed Stephen, uh, Stephen summarized really to the Supreme Court in Israel what had characterized him. And by the way, this is bold preaching. This is speaking truth to power, if there ever was it. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, we've got a history of this. You leaders have a history of this in Israel. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? All the invitation givers were persecuted. And they killed those who foretold of the coming of the just one, of whom you have now become the betrayers and murderers. They didn't like that message. They killed him. Consistent with the parable here, that they killed them. Verse 7, but when the king heard about it, he was furious. And he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Now, many commentators think that what is probably in view here in verse 7 is an allusion to the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem in 70 AD. You see, the city of Jerusalem has always been the centerpiece the headquarters, the religious headquarters in Israel, where the religious leaders totally dominated. They ran Jerusalem. Now, God is very patient. The gospel goes first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Even after the resurrection, Peter continued to call Israel to repentance so that the kingdom could come. This is always the great issue. When is the kingdom going to come? Well, it was presented as at hand early in Christ's ministry. They rejected the king, so it didn't come. After the resurrection now, Peter is telling him, here's the problem, Israel. He's speaking to Israel. Repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that the times of refreshing may come. The kingdom times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus Christ, the king, who was preached to you before. Not a new message. Whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things. That's the kingdom which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. But alas, Israel did not come to repentance. And this is where the gift of tongues Tongues, that is, languages, the gift of languages. This is where it comes in. You say, this seems strange to my ears. That's because we have such an errant theology of tongues out here in the church today. You see, on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, the Spirit came with the gift of languages, gift of tongues. Uh, The gift of languages was able to speak a foreign language that I had never learned. It's not gibberish. 
It's a real language. Now, this really signified God's judgment on Israel. That's what tongues signified. God was now... You know how I know that? Because I know what the Old Testament says. If you don't know what the Old Testament says about this issue, you won't understand the New Testament sign gift of tongues. God was now setting Israel aside, and he would now be working with people of all languages. In the Old Testament, the hearing of foreign languages was a sign of judgment on the Jews as seen in Deuteronomy 28.49 and Isaiah 28.11. You hear foreign speakers coming in. This is a problem, Israel. It's a sign of God's judgment. Now, the book of Acts is a history of the early church chronicling a transition that took place as God set Israel aside and moved to working with the church which is largely made up of Gentiles. Now, part of this transition involved the sign gift of tongues. You know what's interesting? Acts never explains the purpose of tongues. It only presents the phenomenon. You know where the only place in the New Testament that we have the purpose of tongues expressed? That's right. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verses 20 through 22. And here Paul, the the Corinthian church was all confused about this. Oh, wow, wow, look at this. Speaking in tongues gift. And he says, here's the purpose. He says, I want you to understand it. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 20 through 22. Brethren, do not be children in understanding. Uh, Don't be so immature in your thinking. However, in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. Here's mature understanding when it comes to tongues. He goes back to the Old Testament. You want to understand this phenomenon? Let me take you back to the law, to the Old Testament. In the law, and he's quoting here from Isaiah 28, verse 11. In the law, it is written, with men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak. And in context, it's clearly in judgment to this people, the Jews. And yet for all that, they will not hear me, says the Lord. Therefore, conclusion, people of understanding, tongues are for a sign of judgment. Not to those who believe. This isn't a sign for believers. Not to those who believe but to unbelievers, unbelieving Israel. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Well, it is for this reason that after the fall of Jerusalem and the temple, that the sign gift of tongues is found no more. It had ceased itself by reason of fulfillment of purpose, as stated in 1 Corinthians 13.8. It ceased to be exercised because there was no longer a need to sign judgment on the Jews because their city had been totally destroyed. I mean, there could be no greater evidence of God's judgment on the Jews than this. Tongues was a sign that God's judgment was upon Israel. And the destruction of the temple and the city totally confirmed it once and for all. 
You really didn't have to walk and say, I, I wonder if God's upset with this. I mean, just allowed his temple to in the in Jerusalem. I really wonder, is God trying to send a signal here? It's so blame obvious. I mean, when you really look at the purpose of biblical tongues, the modern phenomenon, which is claimed to be tongues, is totally bogus. You see, tongues had its purpose. The sign gift had its purpose. But it's about 2,000 years out of date. The sign of judgment on the Jews was long ago established. Be people of understanding. In fact, it's so out of date that now we see Israel in blindness coming back to the land for the last day's finale. That's where we are today. Well, verse 7 here tells the destruction of the city of the religious leaders with their city being singular. This is a specific city. The specific city of the religious leaders in Israel, which could be no other city than that of Jerusalem. God in his sovereignty used the armies of Rome to destroy the city of Israel's religious leaders in 70 A.D. The priesthood was destroyed. The records were all lost. The temple was burned to the ground. The city of Jerusalem totally burned and destroyed. It happened in perfect accord with this parabolic prophecy. In 70 A.D., when the Roman general Titus conquered Jerusalem, approximately 1,100,000 Jews were killed. The slaughter was incredible. The Jewish historian, Josephus, wrote of the burning of the temple, quote, when the flame arose, a scream as poignant as the tragedy went up from the Jews. Oh, our temple! Couldn't believe it. It's unthinkable. Everybody realized, this is the judgment of God. And it happened because the religious leaders led the nation in the rejection of God's invitation to embrace kingdom reality as seen in God's Son on the basis of repentance. This they absolutely refused to do. Verse 8. Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. The time for the kingdom to come was ready. It was presented to Israel as being at hand on the condition of repentance. But those invited, the Jews, led by their religious leaders in particular, were not worthy. Worthy is the same word, the very same word that John the Baptist used when he told the religious leaders to go and bring forth fruit worthy of repentance. Matthew chapter 3, as we saw earlier in our study, but when he saw John the Baptist, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? How do you escape the coming wrath? Well, 
Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. The reason they were not worthy is because they were not repentant. Now, nobody is worthy within themselves. But upon repentance, we are made right with God. As Peter said in Acts 3.19, Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. This is the condition that makes one worthy of the kingdom. And of course, as we read further, we see it's all of the grace of God that brings people to that point. John MacArthur summarizes, Neither the original invitation nor the subsequent calls were based on merit, but solely on the king's gracious favor. Ironically and tragically, they were declared to be not worthy because they refused an invitation that was in no way based on worth. As the parable goes on to make clear, verse 10, both evil and good people were called. That which makes a person worthy of receiving salvation is not any sort of human goodness or religious or spiritual accomplishment, but simply saying yes to God's invitation to receive his son, Jesus Christ, as Lord. Amen. Verse 9, therefore... In light of the fact that the initial invitation's gone out to this special group of people, the Jews, led by their religious leaders, due to the fact that it had all been rejected, they're not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways. And as many as you find, invite to the wedding. Now, verse 9 marks a change in that a whole new audience is now being invited to the wedding festivities. Hey, this is us. This is exciting stuff right here. You Gentiles ought to rejoice right now. We ought to. We ought to sing a song or something. We're not ready to do it, but we ought to. Earlier in Christ's ministry, the appeal was strictly confined to the house of Israel. He was sent only to the the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The previously invited people were the Jews, but now those in the highways represent the Gentiles. Now, by way of application, this parable applies to the Gentiles who have been the most responsive to the gospel in the church age and make up the greater part of the church family. Acts chapter 13. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things which were spoken by Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you, you Jews, first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves, you ready for this? Unworthy of everlasting life. Behold, we turn to the Gentiles. End of the book, Acts 28, 28. Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. And they will hear it. In Romans chapter 11, verse 11, I say then they have stumbled that they should fall. Certainly not, but through their fall to provoke them to jealousies, talking about the Jews, salvation has come to the Gentiles. In effect, what we have represented in Matthew 22, 9 is the Great Commission, where God's people are told to go and invite anyone and everyone to come to the royal wedding celebration of God's Son in the kingdom. You have your ticket? You going? There's a kingdom celebration coming. 
You have to respond to Jesus. That's the invitation. Repent and believe on him. How wonderful that we too, even as Gentiles, have an invite. I love it. No expense has been spared for this wedding celebration. And no effort is being reserved in inviting people to attend. Go out into the highways and bike. Hey, you're invited. The kingdom celebration is going to be the greatest celebration ever given. What an honor to be invited. This invitation here is all-inclusive, involving, quote, as many as you find, verse 9, and all whom they found, both bad and good, verse 10. This further extensive invitation suggests a delay in the kingdom program. Earlier, those originally invited were told all things are ready. Verse 4. But when they refuse to come to the marriage celebration, it has been put on hold. As others now, Gentiles, are now being invited to come. By the way, this was the key point in the parables of Matthew 13. Namely, that the kingdom program has now been put on hold. And that is where we are today. God is now calling out of the nations of people to come to the wedding celebration of his son in the kingdom. And who's delivering the invitation? You? Me? Us? The church? God has deposited his truth to us. We are responsible to take the invitation. Verse 10. So... Those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, all who would respond, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. Many of them are here this morning. The sense is that as the servants go out, everyone is being invited to come. And those that respond are from all sorts of backgrounds. Both the bad and the good. The word bad refers to that which is morally bad or depraved. Demonstrating itself in wicked behavior. The word good denotes that which is portrayed in moral excellence. You see, some come from respectable contexts and are regarded as good, relatively speaking. Outwardly, that is, they appear as morally upright. Uh, They are the moralists, of course. And some come from a context of being open sinners. But the thing they all share in common is that they respond positively to the invitation being given. Whether you come from a moralist background or that of being a flagrant sinner, in truth, we're all sinners. And all must respond to the invitation to come on God's terms. As Paul begins his presentation of the gospel in Romans, he shows first in Romans 1 through 3 that the out-and-out pagans... And then the moralists, and then the religionists, are all equally under the condemnation of sin, and therefore all equally need a Savior. But the point is, whosoever will can come. You say, well, I'm just too wicked. No, no, the bad have a You can have a seat here. But, but I'm a good person. No, you need to repent too, and you can have a seat here too. Whosoever will can come. 
Some from the moralist and religionist, the so-called good camp, come. And some from the pagan center, the bad camp, they come too. The point is an assortment of people from all kinds of backgrounds respond. This is a picture of the church, by the way. What a motley crew we are. We are a motley crew if there ever was one. I mean, the church is truly a melting pot of every sort. But what we share in common is that we have all responded to the message. To come! John MacArthur says, They called the morally evil and the morally good alike. They're being equally unworthy in themselves to come to the king's feast. I don't care. I don't care whether you consider yourself good or society considers yourself good or bad. It doesn't matter. You all have an invitation. Verse 11. But, but, when the king came to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. Now, that's a problem. Christ here now makes personal application. One has to appropriately respond to share in the wedding festivities. You must personally respond. In order to take part in the kingdom, you have to be properly prepared. Heaven is a prepared place for a prepared people. This is what is being illustrated by way of having on the proper wedding garment. One has to be dressed properly to partake in the kingdom banquet. So the question is this. What does this wedding garment represent? That's a great question. There are really two different ideas put out on the table here by good conservative Bible commentaries. Number one, in Bible times, a king often provided special festive garments that he made available to those who were invited to the royal wedding. All one had to do was put it on. Here, come to the wedding and, and come dressed in this. All you had to do is put it on. Therefore, some think the wedding garment here represents the robe of righteousness, which is provided by Christ on the condition of saving faith. And in the background, they would argue that what may be in view is Isaiah 61.10. Notice what it says there. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Oh, what a glorious robing this is. In saving faith, the Lord gives us what is called imputed righteousness. Imputed is the idea that it's put to our account on the basis of God's grace. Through faith, Christ took all of our sin on the cross. And we get all his righteousness put to our account. That's what I call a grace exchange. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For he made him, that's Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. And then in Philippians 3, how, how do you apply it? How do you put it on? Well, Philippians 3, 3, 9, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, not having to present. 
Oh, all my righteousnesses are as filthy rags, Isaiah 64, 6. Yeah, that's stained. Yeah, that's bad. Nope, unacceptable. Not having mine own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which is from God by faith. That's how you put it on. Faith. So the first view says, the wedding garment here represents being robed in the righteousness of Christ, which is indicative of true saving faith. This person without a proper wedding garment never had a true saving faith. They were a pretender, not truly saved. They claimed to respond to the invitation, but they weren't real. They are exposed as a false disciple. Second view. There's another view. Others take the view that the wedding garment represents the good fruit of a disciple's life, which is the proof of salvation, but not the cause of it. This view would emphasize the judgment in the scriptures is always on the basis of works, which either prove a person is saved or demonstrate they are lost. For example, Matthew chapter 7, as we studied earlier, verse 21. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, they, got, they say the right thing. But not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Ah, who, who's, who's going into the kingdom? Well, the one who does the will of my Father. That's the fruit. In John 5, 28, 29, Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. They're all coming out of the graves. And come forth, those who have done good, characteristic of the fruit of true faith, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. In the book of Revelation, at this marriage supper of the Lamb, we read about it, Revelation 19, 7 and 8, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his wife... That's the bride of Christ has made herself ready. Well, how did she make herself ready? To her was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Charles Ryrie has a great statement here as far as commentary. The delicate balance between the sovereignty of God and human responsibilities maintained in these two phrases has made herself ready. She did it. And it was given to her. God did it. The bride's array is in fine linen, which is explained as the righteous acts of the saints. In other words, the bride's wedding garment will be made up of righteous deeds done in life. The bride is the bride because of the righteousness of Christ. And the bride is clothed for the wedding because of her acts. Righteous acts flow from a righteous character, which is entirely of the grace of God. A great summary statement. In addition to wearing what Christ has done for us, dressed in his righteousness, the saints will be wearing what they have done for him. All by the grace of God. What we weave in time we will wear in eternity. But here is the point. Only those who come to repentance and faith 
will be robed in the righteousness of Christ. And only they will be dressed in the fine linen of good works, which were the fruit of that relationship. New Bible Commentary says, It is not clear whether the wedding garment was something which the guests should have brought, presumably representing good deeds as evidence of a true heart, or something which the host supplied representing forgiveness. In truth, a theological case can be made for both, and in truth, they go together. Where forgiveness is found, you also have regeneration and the expression of a new life. So in truth, where the one is found, the other is also found. Well, this poor fellow was not robed appropriately. He showed up on his own terms. He failed to prepare adequately. There was no true repentance or faith. He had failed to apply the proper wedding garments and now before the king is exposed. Many will say, Lord, Lord, and then be exposed as a fraud and expelled from the kingdom. Now the earlier invitees had insulted the king by refusing to respond to John the Baptist and the other prophets' call to repent. But this man had supposedly responded. But in the end, he is shown to be a pretender. He was not legitimately clothed. He had no true repentance or faith. And his lack of appropriate wedding clothes shows his failure to meet the requirements necessary to enter the kingdom. Verse 12. So he said to him, friend, friend, why did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. The word friend simply means comrade, meaning a companion who shares in something together. In other words, there was some uh, acquaintance here. This wasn't, he didn't just say stranger. No, they, there was some familiarity here. This person moved in the right circles. When Jesus, rather, when Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss, Jesus used this very same word saying, friend, why have you come? Judas knew a lot about Jesus. They definitely moved in the same circles. Friend, you know, the the one I know, uh, the one is my acquaintance, uh, comrade, why have you come? In a sense, it conveys the disposition of the Lord as being one of graciousness and that his graciousness has been betrayed. This represents judgment day. And as the man is called upon to explain himself, he is found speechless. Only an unbelieving fool brags on how he's going to defend himself on that day. Now, some like to act like they're going to argue their case. But in truth, on judgment day, they will be speechless, defenseless, and quiet as a stone. Zechariah 2.13, we'll find this in a number of places, but Zechariah 2.13, be silent, shut up, be silent all flesh before the Lord, for he is aroused from his holy habitation. I mean, when God gets off his throne and comes down in judgment, I'll tell you, there's going to be a holy hush. In conversion, our mouths are stopped. People like to run their mouths, run their mouths, run their mouths, run their mouths all the time. But in conversion, that stops. In conversion, we come to realize we can't defend ourselves. We are guilty 
and we have nothing to say in our defense. All we can do is agree with the guilty verdict. And that's called repentance. You see, before you repent, repentance means to change your mind. Before you repent, you're running your mouth. But in repentance, you change your mind. I have nothing to say. That's what Job did. At the end of the day, I got nothing to say. I repent in dust and ashes. Repentance goes along with confession. Confession, you see, means to agree with. Uh, In salvation, we agree with God concerning the guilty verdict. And our mouth is stopped. Romans 3.19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped. And all the world may become guilty before God. On judgment day, there will be no excuses, no defense, no arguing. And there'll be no bragging. Every mouth will be silent as death. Everyone will be speechless. Again, MacArthur says he was speechless, unable to offer the king even the feeblest excuse. It is therefore obvious that he could have come in if he had had been willing to put on the wedding clothes. Until that point, the man had been utterly presumptuous, thinking he could come to the king's feast on his own terms, in any clothes he wanted. He was proud, self-willed, and thoughtless of others, and worst of all, insulting to the king. Arrogantly defying royal protocol, he was determined to be himself. But on that day, it will be revealed that the only way into the kingdom is God's way. And that way has been provided only through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, a church is not the way in. Rituals or sacraments are not the way in. Baptism will get you wet, but it won't get you saved. Not to put down baptism, because it is a means of identification commanded by the Lord, but it's not salvation. It won't save you. Good works won't get you there. I do this. I do that. Fine. In your dirty clothes, you're out here doing all this stuff. It won't get you in. Only Jesus. He alone is the way, the truth, and the life. He alone is Savior. He alone died on the cross. Nobody was with him. And he alone said, it is finished. He had paid the full price. We owe it all to him for all eternity. We have to come to God on his terms. And his terms are Jesus. Faith in Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Acts 4.12 Nor is there salvation in any other. There is no other name, no other person, no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 1 John 5.12 He who has a son has life. Have Jesus, you have life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Verse 13, Then the king said to his servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now consistently Jesus uses outer darkness and the experience of weeping and gnashing of teeth as descriptive of hell. This person is going to hell. It describes the horrors of indescribable suffering and unrelenting torment that never ends. 
It's so terrible, we can't even think about it much. Jesus spoke more about hell than any other person in the Bible. Because he did not want anyone to go there. Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. Jesus sounded the ultimate warning about hell. Note what he said, just in Matthew. Be cast into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 8.12. Chapter 13. will be cast in the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. The hypocrites. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's like Jesus is stuck on this theme. It is most serious. Eternally serious. To reject the invitation of the king or to pretend to respond when you are not sincere. Such a person's fate is described in terms of outer darkness, furnace of fire, and weeping and gnashing of teeth. I don't know about you, but that terrifies me. Now, I'm no longer terrified for myself because I'm saved. But I am terrified for others. End of the book. Revelation 20, and I saw, then I saw him who sat on it and from whose face the earth and the great white throne. I must have messed up something. This isn't reading right. The last part is correct. And there was found no place for them. There's no place to hide on this day. Verse 12, and I saw the dead small and great standing before God and the books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works. Their works. You want to defend yourself? Let's look at your works. The dead, all great and small, everybody. Okay, line up. We're going to look at your works. Say, I believe. Yeah, the demons believe. By the things which were written in the books, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Jesus said in Matthew 25, 46, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. That's the great dividing point. Verse 14, he concludes his parable by saying, for many are called, but few are chosen. Called is used here in the sense of invited. Many are invited. The invitation is real, which is why the punishment is so severe. I mean, the issue is the rejection of the invitation. God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2.4 God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 2 Peter 3.9 But while many are invited, only a few respond. And they are the chosen few who will inherit eternal life. Out in the world, when, whenever anyone dies, they tend to say, oh, they go to heaven, they're now in heaven. But in truth, most people don't go to heaven. Relatively few are really saved. And this is not the only time Jesus emphasizes this. Remember what he said back in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14? Enter by the narrow gate, the narrow way. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many who go in by it. But narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. You see, if we want to illustrate it. 
Here it is. There's a broad way. Many going that way. And there's a narrow way. Few. Few. Not everybody's going this way. Few are. Here in Matthew 22, 14, we have what is called the, the general call, which is used in the sense of a general invitation as seen in the preceding parable. However, Paul consistently uses the idea of call to refer to those who actually respond and are saved. Thus, it is called an effectual call. There, these are called the elect or the chosen of God. Thus, those who will be saved are called the elect. In Matthew, Jesus consistently uses elect, chosen. Elect means chosen. He uses the word elect, as we see over and over in Matthew 24, for example, to refer to those who will be saved. Paul uses this way too, by the way. In uh, 2 Timothy 2.10, Therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Note, they are called elect even before they have obtained salvation. Now, election is the God side of things that we can't fully comprehend. God's election is God's activity. It's not ours. We don't know the criteria of God's choosing other than it's an election of grace, as Paul says. Somehow this mysteriously intersects with human responsibility in a way that no one can completely figure out. I like what D.L. Moody said. The whosoever wills are the elect and the whosoever wants are the non-elect. True? MacArthur says this phrase in Matthew twenty-two fourteen reflects the scriptural balance between God's sovereignty and man's will. Wycliffe Bible Commentary, Scripture clearly indicates a divine election that brings sinners to God, yet Scripture also indicates that man is responsible for his indifference, verse 5, rebellion, verse 6, and self-righteousness, verse 12. Good summary statement. Note that God's judgment is for the human response of rejection in this study. And this is seen in the word for that links verse 14 back to verses 11 through 13, where the person is held responsible for not being ready, for rejecting the invitation, as seen in the previous part of the parable. In the end, God holds people accountable for how they respond to his divine invitation. Now, the invitation has been going out long and hard. In the Old Testament, we've seen in God saying, come, let us reason together. We see God saying, look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. We see God saying, oh, everyone who thirsts, come. In the New Testament, Jesus invites, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Paul says that today the church is inviting people. As God has given to us the ministry of reconciliation, and we are pleading on behalf of Christ for people to be reconciled to God. The last invitation of the Bible is this. Revelation twenty two seventeen. the spirit and the bride, that's us, God's people, say, come. And let him who hears, those who have heard, and they respond, they too are to say, come. And let him who thirsts, come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. The invitation has gone out far and wide. We cannot blame God for not extending the invitation. The onus is on us, is on people 
what they will do with God's invitation. And this is the ultimate issue. It all comes down to John 3, 18. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. God's royal invitation is currently going forth with the invitation that whosoever will can come. Our Lord's last word in the Gospels is this solemn note. Many are called, but few, few are chosen. As Peter says, make your call and election sure. Our Lord's last word in the Bible on this is come. The invitation is made available to all. But we must personally come. Come. Let's stand and have our closing song.